0: Online at communitybiblechurch.us. The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP Buford, Hilton Head Island, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church of Buford, on the web at WAGP.net. This is The Bible Line, a live radio call in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Buford, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to
1: present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you to the Bible line. If you're a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. You can, uh, uh, as they study the scripture, maybe it's an issue that you need a uh, biblical insight on as it relates to your ministry or family or life, or there's a question you have as you've been studying a text of scripture. You can reach us again locally, 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number for our Internet users is the 877 Exchange. The call letters of our station, 877-WAGP-980. Or you can text us here directly into the studio, or email us, I should say, at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. We do give live callers preference, and if you do have a question, you call it in, you are welcome to go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate it. To Deb, and she'll shoot it here in front of us on the screens that we have before us. Rick, as always, it's wonderful to be here this morning for The Bible Line.
0: It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, we had a follow-up question to a question that was asked last week, wanting to know about the lost tribe of Israel. This caller would like to know if the American Indians were, in fact, the lost tribe.
1: No, uh, they're, they're not. Um, you know, the, uh, by definition a Hebrew is a descendant of Abraham. And so physically speaking, a Jew was someone who descended and could trace their lineage back to Abraham. And so with that said, that's obviously not true of the American Indians and the tribes are not really lost. Certainly not to God in some people who have uh, put forth the idea that the tribes were lost, uh, really haven't read their Bible very carefully because uh, what they're referring to is the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And so if you uh, do a study uh, of the Old Testament, you discover that there was a time when all 12 tribes were united. But because of the compromise of Solomon, God said that he was going to divide his kingdom, but he would wait until he left the throne uh, for the sake of his uh, relationship that he had with his daddy, King David. And so Solomon's son comes to the throne, Rehoboam, He foolishly listens to the uh, younger elders rather than the older, wiser leaders in Israel. And the kingdom ends up splitting the 10 northern tribes. So prior to that, the whole ball of wax, all 12 tribes were called Israel. After that, the 10 northern tribes are referred to as Israel. They're carried away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And uh, prophets continue to come, warn the two southern tribes uh, called Judah, after the larger of the two, Judah and Benjamin. They're carried away ultimately by the Babylonians. Obviously, the two southern tribes return. But some of the peoples in the northern tribes return as well. Uh, people say, well, they were scattered, they were lost. Again, that's not entirely true. All you have to do is read the New Testament And as you read the New Testament, you, for instance, find Anna, who's in the temple, and she's identified from the tribe of Asher. That's one of the 10 northern tribes. Um, It is true that a lot of the people in the 10 northern tribes were dispersed, but not all of them. Uh, Many of them came back into Judah because they didn't like the violation that Jeroboam, the king, the first king of the... uh, the Northern kingdom established where he created a new worship center. God said you worship only in Jerusalem period. So not wanting to uh, have any attrition out of the 10 tribes, he created some two new centers, two new cities where the people could worship God. And that was in violation of scripture. And of course it led into paganism. So some of the uh, people in the 10 Northern tribes ended up migrating back South into the uh, Southern kingdom. And of course, um, Uh, as you read through the Chronicles and the Kings, you'll read of different kings reigning at the same time because they're in two different kingdoms. Now, it is true that a lot of Jews today cannot trace their lineage. Though, if you go to Israel today, the Orthodox will tell you, well, we may not be able to trace it with all the tribes, but certainly with the tribe of Levi, we can. And any problems in terms of tracing the tribes, God will make very clear during the time of the uh, revelation uh, when God unfolds in Revelation 7 uh, what will actually happen the revelation is a revelation in uncovering uh, given to Jesus Christ and it's about Jesus Christ and in that great apocalypse which apocalypsis means the unfolding or the uncovering it would be like a statue where it's draped and you Pull the cover off the statue it 's a you, you see it well God allows us to see Christ in a very different way as this sovereign ruling king of the universe and in Revelation seven, there is a remnant of Israel, one hundred and forty four thousand that are selected out of the twelve tribes, so during the tribulation we 'll see very clearly. Uh, some of the tribes identified and the people within those tribes. So the American Indians know they're not a part of Israel any more than the whole theology of British Israelism. They say that, you know, the Brits are the represent the 10 lost tribes. And that's convenient. In fact, when a king or a queen is installed, they bring out a stone. It hasn't happened in over 60 years. And they say it's the stone that Jacob Uh, the progenitor whose name was called, renamed Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, God renamed him Israel. He's a prince of God, so to speak. And he has 12 sons. And so the 12 tribes. And so they say they have the actual rock that Jacob laid his head on when he fell asleep that night. And they bring it out when the king or queen is installed. So this whole idea of British Israelism, it goes back to false theology that came out of the Reformation. Uh, Calvin and Luther were just really dead wrong on some plain, simple truths as it related to the people of Israel. I thank God for their lives and for the positive things they did, but they were just confused because they come out of the thick of Roman Catholicism that initially propagated these uh, false teachings that the church had become the new Israel. And with that, bled out these false doctrines of 10 lost tribes and the Brits taking their place. And it gets very complicated, but I hope that will help you a little bit there.
0: 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, don't forget, you can always listen to any of these uh, online at wagp.net, and uh, uh, you can just put in the date that you want to listen to. If perhaps you had put in a question and didn't get uh, an opportunity to listen to it in its entirety, or perhaps you would like to uh, uh, listen to it again. It's available now. So let's go to our first live caller of the morning. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
1: Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. How can we be of help? Yeah, so I'm going to have to hang up after I ask my question, but I will be listening. So on Sunday, I was speaking with someone that afternoon, and he's,
2: <clears throat> his view, if spiritual things came up, I asked him what church he goes to. He doesn't go to church because churches, most churches lie about how to be saved of course I said, what do you mean by that? So his view, and what he understands, is um, we have to obey the law to save ourselves. And the only thing that Jesus did was eliminate the need to to have a blood sacrifice. He said nowhere in the Bible, New Testament included, does it say we do not have to follow the law. His main point was Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, when asked, what do I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, follow the commandments. Uh, he went on to say grace is only, when you accept Jesus, you get a grace period to then follow the commandments to save yourself. And I wanted to know what you would, um, some verses, or what you would uh, respond to him. I, I, had, I had mentioned the thief on the cross had no time for a grace period, but that's the only thing I can come up with. So I was wondering what she would say.
1: Thank you. Well, it's a great question, and obviously your your friend is confused, uh, and there have been people confused throughout the ages, and so the New Testament epistles really unfold it very, very clearly. Um, Jesus Himself said to the Apostle Paul that men are sanctified by faith in Me. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, it's one of the few places in the Acts where you see the words of Christ. But the epistles unfold very, very clearly the teachings of the Lord, so that none are confused. Certainly, the rich young ruler that you reference in Matthew 19 thought that he was righteous by what he did. So Jesus kind of met him where he was at. He said, oh, you know, all these commandments I've obeyed. Okay, well, let's, how about this one? Why don't you go sell all that you have? What is he doing? He's not teaching justification by works. He's using the law, which uh, Paul in Galatians 3 says is a tutor, a schoolmaster to lead us to faith in Christ. When you look in the mirror, you see that your face is dirty, when you look into the law of God, you see that your soul is dirty and that you need a savior. And that's really what he's doing with the rich young ruler. When he uh, unfolds to him, uh, that he is a sinner and he has a different God. He has the God of money and wealth that he follows and it brought him low. And so he went away sad. But again, for instance, in the book of Galatians chapter two, now Galatians is an interesting book because people are not adding a multiplicity of commandments to the work of Jesus on the cross, but actually just one. Uh, It's a New Testament epistle where you have these people who say, well, yes, we acknowledge that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, uh, but what he did, as important as it is, is not enough that a person... A man must be circumcised before he can be saved. And so Paul opens the epistle and he says to you, But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. So the word "a curse is a, is a Greek word anathema. You could paraphrase it damn to hell. And he says this under the inspiration of the spirit, because God is so intent on the salvation of souls. And God only has one way of salvation. And that is through faith alone in Christ alone, that we are saved by grace through faith. And so to pollute the gospel is to bring yourself under a terrible situation before God. Now, uh, with that said, a little bit later, he begins to unfold uh, their error. He says, for instance, in Galatians 2:15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So Paul is looking at the fact that, yes, he's a member of God's covenant people. He is not a sinner from among the Gentiles. He's not a, a pagan Gentile. He's a member of God's covenant people. Nevertheless, he says in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. I don't know how he could have said it any more plainly. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, the Greek word is dekaios, it means to be declared righteous. No one is declared righteous by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we, we being, we Jews, have believed in Messiah Jesus and Christ Jesus. Why? That we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then he will say in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. In other words, I'm not making God's grace meaningless. For if righteousness comes through the law, if you could get right in God's sight by the good things you do, then Christ died needlessly. He would not have had to have died. He could have just come to earth, uh, been a model for us as to what we should do and how we should behave. And then he could have ascended into heaven, but he doesn't choose to ascend into heaven until after he dies on the cross. He becomes our substitute, rises from the dead, proving that he could become our substitute. Uh, in Romans three twenty one, he says, but now apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul is saying that if you want to get right with God, if you want the righteousness that you need, it comes apart from the law. And he says, this truth is witnessed by the law and the prophets. You could say today, this truth is witnessed by the Old Testament. The Old Testament never taught that a man was saved by his obedience to the law, that God had one way of salvation in the old Testament. And now under the new covenant, he has another way. No, the old Testament bears witness to the fact that a man could never be saved by the good things that he does. And in the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, he's going to illustrate that by looking at two people that were highly esteemed in the minds of the Jews, uh, father, Abraham, and who's the father of the faithful, who's the friend of God and King David. And so when he comes to chapter four, he says, what shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, if Abraham was saved by his obedience to the law, then he has something to boast about, something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? He goes to the authority of the word of God. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Um, You can go to Genesis 15 and God makes him a promise. God had said earlier in chapter 12 of Genesis, he unfolds it further in Genesis 15, even further in Genesis 17, that through Abraham's lineage, all the nations, all the people's, Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be blessed. Why? Because through Abraham, through his lineage, through the Jewish people, God is going to bring the Savior of the world. And God justifies Abraham, saves him apart from works Uh, for if abraham was justified by works then he has something to brag about but not before god for what does the scripture say abraham simply believed god and it was reckoned it was imputed it was credited to him as righteousness then he makes an analogy now to the one who works his wage is not reckoned as a favor but what is due when you work hard at the end of the week and someone gives you your wage, your paycheck, it's not considered a favor. They owe it to you. You put in your 50 hours. That check is an obligation. That's the word that King James uses. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. God justifies the person who is characterized by two truths. One, he sees he cannot work for his salvation, but he simply believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. And he goes on, he illustrates it with King David. Uh, You can listen to my series. You might want to listen to chapters Uh, Romans 3 and 4 get your friend to listen to it Uh, in the next book over in Ephesians we just quoted from Galatians a moment ago if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly I could have taken you to Galatians 3 where again he speaks to the purpose of the law it's not to save us but to show us that we need a savior in Ephesians 2 8 9 this is a verse a lot of Christians have memorized for we have been saved by grace through faith not of ourselves it referring to the whole by grace through faith process what we call salvation it is the gift of God it's not going back to faith as some have uh, (laughs) assumed Uh, it's going back to the whole phrase by grace through faith he uses a feminine then he uses a masculine word then he uses a neuter pronoun because he's not pointing to, he's, he's pointing to the whole by grace through faith process for by grace, you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not a reward for anything you've done so that no one can boast. Now the next verse says, for we are his workmanship creating in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved to do good works. And that is indeed a mark of, of salvation. Uh, Paul, in the book of um, Philippians, the next book over, again, hammers home this truth that if a man was uh, saved by the good things that he does, then Jesus would not have had to have died. Uh, Paul says that he put no confidence in the flesh in what he had accomplished in Philippians three. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh. What do you mean, Paul? Well, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the uh, nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, um, Again, here's a guy who had so much going for him, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now listen to Philippians 3, 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which is what your friend is teaching, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness, which comes from God on the basis of faith, not by works. Um, Paul will write to Titus and he tells us for we once were foolish, ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our savior, and his love for mankind, appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. I mean, we could go through the gospels. We could go through every single book in the new Testament and the message is plain. It is clear. We're saved by grace through faith and not by works. But if you're interested, you might want to, to study this, further to really bone up on it, listen to Romans 3 and 4 out of my Romans series at searchthescriptures.org, and that might be helpful to you. Even the last text I just quoted, my Titus series from Titus chapter 3, and you'll be able to defend clearly what your friend is uh, dealing with. Good question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Danny from Riverview, Florida writes, what does the Bible say about tattoos?
1: Well, it's a good question. And it's a question that's often asked in our day and it's asked more and more and more and more in the day that we live in because uh, tattoos have become kind of a standard fare for the day in which we live. Um, Paul says this, and, and let me just kind of hit the broad strokes of it. In 1 Corinthians 10, and I'm turning there real quickly, and in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable all things are lawful, but not all things edify. So some things are lawful, they're permissible, permissible, but you have to ask, are they beneficial? And so uh, people would argue from 1 Corinthians 9, and, and by the way, when you, when you think of a tattoo, I know that there are different kinds of tattoos. There's obviously the difference between some evil looking skull on a man or a woman's body or some naked woman Verse is a tattoo of, of the cross, and I understand that. Um, but with that said, uh, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 9, "I've become all things to all men, that I might win some. And some people have used that verse to argue that, well, if I want to win people with tattoos, then I need to get a tattoo. But I would just say, I think as a general principle, if a person will not listen to you due to a lack of a tattoo, I doubt very very seriously they will listen to you if you have a tattoo. Uh, in fact, you will actually close off your audience in some circumstances if you're covered in ink. And I know I'm talking to a lot of people who've got tattoos and some that are visible, some that are not visible, and I and I understand that and they're pretty hard to undo obviously. Uh, And you can use them certainly as a reminder that God saved you. There used to be a time that usually the only people who had tattoos were people in prison, you know, and uh, maybe an occasional sailor or a Marine. Um, But I doubt really that you can argue that they are beneficial. You might say, well, are they permissible? Well, the fact that there is a command in scripture in the book of Leviticus chapter 19 uh, makes me question whether or not they are permissible in Leviticus 19 and verse 28. You should not make any cuts in your body for the dead. That's one half of the verse, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. And so if you read this whole section, 26 through 33, God was instructing Israel to avoid, you know, certain pagan practices that characterized the Canaanites and that included in verse 26 of this chapter, the eating of blood. By the way, God still makes that a prohibition. So blood sausage is something a Christian would not eat. It is still wicked to eat blood in the book of uh, Acts deals with that in the Jerusalem council. And I have a whole sermon on that, that that was not just some a non-moral issue. It's a binding moral issue. And it's highlighted again in the new Testament. Uh, They weren't to disfigure the body that God made. Um, They weren't to cut their hair a certain way because the way they cut their hair would be to mimic the Canaanites and to worship some pagan deity. And so they weren't to give their daughters to prostitution, the verse after tattoos. Uh, They weren't to go to mediums after that. That's still evil. Um, they were not to ignore giving honor to the aged. They were to respect them. These are are moral commands. These are not just commands that fall in the ceremonial law. There are moral commands. And so the fact that there is a command uh, that you shouldn't make a tattoo mark on your body should cause you to question. And of course, I think you can ask, is God glorified by a tattoo. Well, you know, it's debatable, certainly. Um, but I would also say that God calls us to live modestly. And so there are some things that just call attention to people. And Paul warns against that, especially in relation to women in first Timothy two and verse nine. And I would say as a general principle too, if there's room for doubt, then don't do it. Uh, when in doubt, cut it out. Whatever cannot be done from faith is sin. Romans 14. So I say all that to say that, you know, most weeks when I baptize new Christians, you know, there's a lot of ink on people who are coming to faith and I don't, you know, uh, write them off as, you know, their salvation or anything like, you know, it, it's, it's sad. It's a reality. But, you know, if your child comes to you and says, Hey dad, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. Tell them No. Uh, and give them some of these reasons that I just went through. Um, so I, I would think it's it's not wise, and it will actually be hurtful. It used used to be able to say that um, not everyone who has a tattoo is in prison, but everybody who's in prison has a tattoo, and that was a general rule of thumb that was you know often true. And when you look at people today, often with tattoos, and again, I, I'm, I'm careful here. And so don't judge me. But a lot of people who have tattoos in their body have gotten into drugs and illicit sex. And uh, they think that they're cool. And But many times these are characteristics that, uh, you know, are typical of unregenerate people. You've got one. You can't do anything about it. Uh, live with it but teach what the scripture says. And so I think you would be going over an edge to encourage people to, to have tattoos. And I know there are preachers today. Like we had a guy, Perry Noble, he's now defunct, you know, a drug problem or alcohol problem, you know, and he was bragging from the pulpit about the new tattoo he had and all this nonsense. And, you know, you don't want to encourage disobedience in the hearts of your children or grandchildren. And there's ample reason to say tattoos are not wise, especially when we have such a direct command. And the book of Leviticus, all encapsulated in the moral dictates
0: of Scripture. 843-525-1859, if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Camille from Savannah writes, Is the movement known as the Apostolic Reformed Movement compatible with Scripture? Are there New Testament prophets and apostles in our present time?
1: Um, it's it's interesting. This movement uh, came out of Fuller Seminary, which anything that comes out of Fuller Seminary should be suspect, because they were once in evangelical seminary. Many people would listen to the Charles Fuller Hour in the nineteen forties and early fifties, and he was a great preacher, one of the first uh, expository preachers on Christian radio. But the Fuller that uh, the, the 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 seminary that bears his name. Uh, in the late seventies, began to question biblical inerrancy, and so look if a, a if a seminary cannot say that every single word of holy scripture is the infallible inerrant word of God, you ought to be suspect. And so Tim LaHaye, who a lot of us know for his Left Behind series, uh, he actually wrote some great books as a pastor. In the 70s and 80s and one was entitled the battle for the mind and in that book he defends biblical inerrancy and of course uh was putting forth in those days uh where fuller seminary was going in for evangelical christians to flee their support well peter wagner who died last year if i remember um he was a self-proclaimed apostle of sorts. And he uh, was one of the leaders in the new apostolic reformation. And they basically say that God has in these latter days, restored the apostles and prophets of the early church. And they claim that they have the greatest authority in their church today that they can give a uh, direction to God's people like few others can because they are recipients of divine revelation. And so most of them would say they are not apostles in the sense of the early apostles. And they have to say that because if you question them, or are you raising anybody from the dead? You know, when was the last time, you know, someone who's blind from birth, you know, you, I mean, they, they're not doing the things that the early apostles did. Lay all that aside. Um, they do believe that they are recipients of direct revelation. And that's wrong. Um, whenever you add to the Bible, then you're basically saying the word of God is not sufficient. And so during the Protestant Reformation, one of the watchwords, which is on the front of my pulpit that I preach from every Sunday, are two Latin words, sola scriptura. Sola, of course, is the Latin word for alone, scriptura, obviously scripture, scripture alone. So the issue in uh, the time of the Reformation was, is there an authority outside of the Bible that can be trusted or placed on the same level as the Bible and the Roman Catholic church said, yes, the traditions of the church are on the same level, not every tradition, but those that are officially sanctioned by the church. And so they argued that if um, they teach something that comes ex cathedra from the uh, chair of the Pope, that it's on the same level in authority of scripture. Well, Luther, of course, saw all these abuses in the church and the many things that they were teaching, the sale of indulgences and so forth. And as he began to study scripture and was forced into the Bible, he saw many contradictions between what the Bible was teaching and what the church was teaching. And so he tacked to the door of the church, 95 theses, 95, the word theses, not a thesis, but a thecee. Uh, an assertion, 95 assertions on the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany, where he felt like the church had veered from what the Bible plainly said. And so the start of the Protestant reformation. So this issue is really no different. What they are saying is there's a source outside of the word of God. Now there was a time in the early church when the scripture was being compiled and some, some, Short periods of time when the first verse of scripture had not yet been penned, when God spoke directly through prophets. And God, when he spoke from one of the apostles, spoke with the Lord's authority. But once the canon of scripture was completed, uh, the, um, the, the idea of new revelation ceased Now, are there prophets today in the church? Well, there's the gift of prophecy, but it's not foretelling, but it is foretelling. And if you study the office of prophet in the Old Testament, there are two dimensions to it. Not only a foretelling dimension, but a foretelling. And some of the prophets would go around and they would foretell what other prophets of God, some of whom have books that bear their name in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh. And they would preach what they already said, because that was one dimension, of the office. And certainly that was true of the gift. And so they couldn't say, well, what does Paul say about, um, you know, being single in first Corinthians seven? Well, they hadn't written it yet. And so God could speak directly through a prophet. And, and of course, let everything be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So even then uh, it couldn't just be someone who stood up and said, here's a word from God. Uh, The prophets were to test the spirits of prophets And so there was a process that went through, but once the canon of scripture was completed, these gifts that had a revelational dimension to it ceased. But (coughs) excuse me, but people here in the last days are trying to argue that, oh, but they're back and you know, they like to be Mr. Big shot. That's really what they do. They're on an ego trip. I don't know how else to say it. I'm not trying to be mean, but they're on an ego trip. God has spoken to me and you need to listen. And they're going beyond the realm of scripture. And that's what the devil does. You know, the devil questions the the authority and the absolute um, uh, sufficiency of the 66 books of the bible and every cult is built on some new dream some new book some new revelation that goes beyond the scope of scripture whether it's the 67th book that the mormons give or this new apostolic reformation movement it's the same error just repeating itself in a different way great question let's go to the next one
0: okay and this is kind of along the same lines but it has some additional questions Uh, Gwenda Jayawardana from Brisbane, Queensland, Australia writes, I'm hearing a lot more about a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation and seeing the influence that high-profile figures such as Bill Johnson are having on followers of Christ today. Can you please outline your understanding of the NAR movement, and is this movement a cause for concern for all Christians? Also, if God has given someone the gift of prophecy and they exercise this gift today, are they called a prophet? Also in Acts 2, where it speaks of, Pentecost, the onlookers thought uh, those who were speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance were drunk. I've seen people in church services twitching and falling to the ground when being prayed over. Are these actions the work of the Holy Spirit or some other spirit? Many thanks in advance for your answer.
1: Well, it's a good question. We appreciate the church in Australia. We know it's a real challenging place for God's people to live. Many challenging places in the world, but Christians are far and few between And so if you're looking tonight at your dinner table to pray for a nation, pray for the church in Australia. With that said, obviously I just kind of highlighted some of the gross error of this movement. And it is uh, showing itself in a very profound way, even in the continent of Australia. With that said, you do raise some additional issues that are related. Uh, For instance, tongues, um, you know, they dried up with the completion of the canon of scripture. And there were no people speaking in tongues for some 1,900 years. And so people take what uh, Peter said in Acts 2, where the 120 come out of the upper room. And really, you can no more repeat Pentecost, as people are wanting to do today, than you can repeat Bethlehem or Golgotha, Calvary. Uh, This is a unique historical event and some of the things that happened here on the day of pentecost were unique there was the sound of a round, of a loud rushing wind he uses a simile in the in the english text as in in greek there's no wind but it's like the sound of a loud rushing wind and that's god's grace getting people's attention because the city is packed with pilgrims and uh they are there as pious Jews celebrating Pentecost, the 50th day of the Feast of Fruits. And it was a time of great celebration. And so when you heard this incredible noise, it would cause you, what's that? And thousands of people went towards the noise. And of course, it's then that the 120 come out. And as they come out, there's flames that rest on each of the 120. Has that ever happened since? No, any more than the wind has. Uh, they're like birthday candles, I suppose, you know, God's celebrating the birthday of the church. Cause this is when the church actually begins. And then when they speak in tongues, it says they uh, heard them in their own language and they heard them speak other tongues. And there are two words that are used in acts two and verse four, the tongue, the word for tongue is glossolalia. And it's always used of a real language in scripture. And the second word that's translated language in verse six, six is the Greek word dialectos we get our word dialect directly from it. So not only did they speak in a known language, they spoke a dialect within the language. And there are dialects in America. Uh, Texas English is different from Boston English and so forth. And there are dialects within languages across the world. And so that was the miracle of it. There are 15 different languages. And of course, when this happens, there are people who are mocking uh, Peter says, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words for these men are not drunk. So there were people were, like, Ah, they're just a bunch of drunks Now they knew they weren't drunk, but they were, they're they making fun of them. They're full of sweet wine. And Peter says, no, 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 no. For these men are not drunk as you suppose it is only the third hour of the day. Uh, it's impossible for them to be drunk. People don't get drunk at nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour of the day. They may do that at night typically, but not at the third hour of the day. And this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And so some of our brethren and some of them aren't brethren, but some of them are, uh, in this day are saying, well, this is what God said would happen in the last days. You see, and this is why it wasn't around for 1,900 years. Peter is actually applying what took place over 2,000 years ago as having taken place in the last days. So this is precisely what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days, meaning we're in the last days. And we have been since the day of Pentecost because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that prophetically nothing needs to happen for Jesus to come and catch up his church. Now, I do believe we're in the last of the last days, and there's another term used in the Bible of latter days, latter times, that Daniel and the prophets use and and the New Testament uses. And that looks at those final days before the second coming of Christ, which is distinct from the catching up of the church. But with that said, uh, this is what would happen at the, the beginning of the church age, which marks the last days. And so what took place, this resurgence movement in 1900, uh, this new revelation doesn't even begin to look like what took place in the day of Pentecost. The languages that people began to speak of, speak first in Scotland, then it came to America, to Sousa Street, doesn't even begin to resemble the one place in the whole Bible where real languages are given on Pentecost. So there's no parallel. In fact, what is happening today is no different. That goes back to the second century BC. There were, there were cultic groups that spoken so-called tongues and gibberish. That was not what took place in the day of Pentecost. And there are cults today. And obviously we would say that they are not uh, acting by the Holy spirit. There are cults that don't even believe in the deity of Christ that speak in tongues the way international for instance and they are speaking in the kind of gibberish that is really no different from what our Pentecostal brethren are doing and you know obviously spiritual gifts are not given to the loss um, my Pentecostal friends would say well that's just an imitation well it's not uh, because again if you need a text of scripture as to what tongues really looks like then you need to go to Acts chapter two. Now some people get mad at me when I speak on the tongues issue and I got a letter from a dear lovely lady and I tried to call her back and I said, well, look, you know, I'm not unique in my perspective. I left a message on her phone, you know, David Jeremiah, who you hear every morning on this station, he holds the same position I do. John MacArthur, who you hear every day on this station, he holds the same position I do. Chuck Swindoll holds the same position I do. Tony Evans holds the same position I do. Um, uh, The um, pastor of the former pastor of Moody Church, Erwin Lutzer holds the same position that I do. Uh, We could go on and, uh, or Alistair Begg holds the same position that I do. Are all these guys wrong? Are they all out to lunch? Are they all you know, distorted in their thinking? I think not. I think the scriptures are, are plain on this issue. Well, my friends would come back and say, well, they're not speaking in a real language. True. It's not identifiable. That's because they're speaking in an angelic language and they appeal to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Let's keep reading. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. He's using hyperbole here. Um, Paul would say that no one has all knowledge, all mysteries, except God himself, obviously only God is omniscient. So he's using hyperbole. So when he speaks, not only of the tongues of men, but of angels, he's using hyperbole. He's not advocating that we will speak in angelic tongues any more than we will have all knowledge. So this is an important issue. I deal with it in my course on spiritual gifts. If you really want to study it and be objective and go through all the scripture, most people don't. They just say, well, I had this experience and I know some lovely people who speak in tongues. Well, I know some lovely people who speak in tongues too. That doesn't make it right. So think this through. Let's go to the next question, Rick.
0: All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And um, we had a question from Tempest in Bluffton, but we'll get to that right after we take this live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Hello. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. I have two questions. The first question is about John chapter 1, verse 9. Um, in the King James, it says, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And then in the NASB, it's slightly different. It says, that was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Um, Can you explain that verse? And then my second question for Dr. Brogy is, have you ever thought about starting a second program called the Soul Winning Line, where people could call in and ask uh, so winning questions?
1: You know, um, that's been presented to me before by a couple of different people over the years. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that. It's just my, my time is I just have so much time um, in a given week. And so I kind of carve out Tuesdays. Occasionally I have a funeral or a meeting and I can't be here and they do a replay uh, but most Tuesdays, if I'm physically here, I will do the Bible line. But I do welcome any questions on, quote unquote, soul winning that people would like to ask. So uh, the Bible line's not restricted in terms of the kinds of questions. So I already really have a format for it in that respect. And interestingly, we get a lot of questions that people ask. We, the first question that came through today with a live caller was he had a friend who he was obviously trying to witness to. And his friend said that you're not saved by grace alone through faith alone, but you're saved by your obedience to the law. And he was quoting some verses on that. And so we, I went through about six or seven new Testament passages that obviously teaches differently. And so with that said, um, I am, I'm open to any questions that people might have in reference to, um, you know, wanting to bring people to Christ, that my heart beats for that. And I really think that we live in a day when the average Christian no longer shares his faith. Um, You know, we're living in a day where America is really going down the tubes and it's going down the tubes fast. And Christians are looking in the wrong places to solve the problem. You know, if we can just get a really good, strong leader in the White House, you know, a godly Christian, then he's going to turn it around. I don't think there's a mature Christian in America who could serve in the presidency of the United States, who could turn our country around because we are under the judgment of God right now. According to Romans chapter one, we've ignored God and we've waved our fist in his face. And the most godly man in the white house cannot fight against God almighty. Uh, What America needs to do today is to repent and I think if America would confess her sins and get right with God, we could have a little child that could lead us and be successful in the whole process. But <clears throat> with that said, no, I'm, I'm not opposed to uh, helping people, win people to Christ. And, and that's what has to happen in our day. Um, you know, we have approximately 170,000 people in Beaufort County And of the 170,000, God alone knows how many are real Christians. And out of those who are real Christians, how many have attempted to share the gospel or in any way, shape, or form reached out to the unbelievers all around them each day to try to break into their life spiritually, whether it's inviting them to a church service or sharing their testimony or walking them through the plan of salvation. The numbers are very, very small. And Southern Baptist just came out with a study and of course, they're the largest Protestant evangelical organization in the United States. And their their baptisms, it's, it's incredible to see them go up and up and up and up and up. And then in the 1990s, they begin to drop. And then 2000, they drop even more. And in 2010, they make a dramatic drop. Why? Because... In the author of, of the study, and I would concur with him, I've been saying it for years, he said, because Christians aren't sharing their faith anymore. And so so my heart is to win people to the Lord Jesus. I, I want that more than anything and anything I can do to help people in that process, I will. And now let me go back to John 1 and verse 9. <clears throat> this, um, it says, there was a true light coming into the world who en- enlightens every man um, there was a true light, which coming into the world, enlightens every man. Uh, the ESV says the true light, which comes, uh, w- the true light, uh, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Um, the net Bible, the new English translation, the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The King James says, that was the true light, which lightens, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And the new King James renders it very similar. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So who is the, that that he's referring to? Well, obviously he's going back to verse six. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light. That he might, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So in the King James it says uh, that. Um, where actually in the uh, NASB it says there was. Um, there certainly is a small translation difference. And they're trying to clarify, I think here in the King James um, or in the new American standard. And it's actually a little bit more literal. Uh, I just opened my Greek new Testament to John one nine. And of course the, the order is uh, a little bit different. In fact, the, the verb to be in a past tense is the very first word in the, in, in verse nine was literally reads was the light uh, or the light was uh, ta aletheon, true, which and then it's a uh, it's a, a verb uh, participle specifically that which lightens every man coming into the world. So literally how it reads, and so there's not a difference in my judgment in terms of meaning. There is a difference in terms of how you translate it. And I do think that King James is a little bit more wooden here and a little more challenging in the New American Standard because I'm reading out of the Greek New Testament and there's no difference, by the way, in terms of the Nestle-Allen text or the majority text. There's no textual issues or anything like that, if, if you know what I'm referring to. It reads identically the Greek New Testament in every manuscript. No scribal notes here that we're wandering through or wondering if it's part of the original and so I think the new American standard brings out the verb to be a little more strongly and they put it at the front of the verse. Why? Because that is actually the very first word uh, in the Greek new Testament. And so for emphasis um, they, they, they try to bring that out. I think they do it a little bit cleaner, but you know, it's, it's talking about Jesus. In fact, in the NASB, uh, I like the fact that they capitalize light like in the King James. Now, obviously, that's a translation decision, uh, but I think it's a correct decision because it's a reference to God. So the NASB and the King James capitalize pronouns in words that are direct references to God, and in this case, God the Son. So um, they make that distinction. There was the true light referring to God, the son, John said, I'm not the light. I'm just here. The one pointing to the light, which coming into the world, enlightens every man versus um, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. To me, it's the same. Uh, His point is, is that the light exposes us and, and illuminates us and reveals to us the Messiah of the world. Anyway, good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next
0: one. Okay, I think we've got time. Uh, Tempest from Bluffton would like to know, what dates are you going to Israel, and are you doing the Jordan extension like you did in 2012? I have to plan early, she says. Well, I
1: appreciate that, and we are, by God's grace, planning to go to Israel in 2018. In fact, one of my staff members, uh, Steve Guthrie, is working on the brochure Uh, We haven't locked in on the exact week, but it looks like it's going to be either the first or second week in May of 2018. So we're just about uh, 13 months away from going again. Uh, We're not going to do the Jordan extension. Let me, let me tell you why Um, to do the Jordan extension takes basically two days out of the trip. So you get to go to a place like Petra, which is pretty cool. But in terms of biblical sites, other than Petra and Petra is not specifically mentioned but the region is and most think that that's the place where uh, the Jews will flee to uh, in the wilderness during the time of the great tribulation but lay that aside to take two days because it's a big process to get into Jordan you've got to go down to that section of Israel overnight there get into Jordan it takes a whole day to get over to Petra then you come out And in the process, you end up giving up about 10 other biblical sites that you might be able to see in Israel proper. So um, we're not going to do it. Uh, That's not to say I would never do it again. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us today.